Scott, thanks. Right now on Fast, we are counting down to the most important data point for the markets before next week's Fed decision. It's CPI. Out at 8.30 tomorrow, stocks sell off into the close. Forget the idea of Netflix buying Roku. A top investor thinks the streamer should buy Spotify. The Chartmaster is here to tell us why he thinks home improvement can improve your portfolio. And then later, diving into dividends from defense to insurance to riding the rails. I'm Carl Quintanilla in for Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market side. On the desk tonight, Guy Adami, Steve Grasso, Bono and Eisen, and Julie Beal from Kane Anderson Rudnick. Guys, a pleasure to be with you guys again. Let's begin with that late-day sell-off. Major indexes closed near their lows of the day. S&P down nearly 2.5. NASDAQ sheds nearly 3. Only one Dow component ekes out a gain. Every sector down. Financials and tech lead the losses. Move comes, of course, as investors count down to one of the most important data points in recent memory. Just over 15 hours until we get May CPI, the latest indication of whether we've hit peak inflation. How will it shape investors going into the weekend? Guy, what do we think? Did we get spooked late today? First of all, Q, CNBC royalty that you are, it's wonderful to have you join us, number one. Number two, yeah, I mean, spooked, but I don't know necessarily if it's on the back of CPI as much as it is some of the rhetoric we've heard from a lot of these companies about hiring freezes, inventory builds, all those different things. And something we mentioned last night, and this has been concerning me and seemingly concerning the market now, credit, which has not been on anybody's radar screen, seemingly now is rolling over in the form of the HYG. Just check that intraday move out yesterday around 1230. Look at what it did today. To me, that's the final piece of this sort of mosaic for a bear market credit. And if credit rolls over, I think that 3750 level that I've been waiting for in the S&P is a foregone conclusion. Julie, you go along with that. Was credit part of this? Was, I mean, we did, uh, CNBC broke the news late tonight before the close about stitch fix layoffs, another indication of another former high flyer trying to rein in spending. Can we put all that together in some kind of narrative in advance of tomorrow's print? Yeah, I, I think inflation is an important part of it because it ties into rates. But for sure, what's going on in credit is concerning. You saw early indications with companies like Affirm starting to report major losses, right? People aren't paying for their sweaters, you know. That's a problem. And so I think that starts to really peter out through the rest of the economy. And once credit goes, I think the whole thing goes. Steve, how about you? Well, how, how surprised were you uh, by that, that, that last half hour of trade? Yeah, Carl, I, I think CPI is definitely on people's mind. I, we've heard from the, the retail sector, <laughs> retail uh, uh, stores. We've heard from, from that uh, enough to give us a, a, a little sniff of something negative. The market is worried about rates. The market is worried about recession. They go hand in hand. So if now we're starting to hear about companies already getting ahead of the eight ball, saying, let me lay off uh, employees and let me worry about the negativity that's coming, I want to be ready today instead of tomorrow, instead of when it happens. That's something where investors say, hey, maybe I should pull back a little bit. So it's contagious, but I think it started with the CPI, to your point, where you opened the show. Yeah. Bonwin, it's interesting. Yellen's a deal book today in D.C. And one of the things she points out is she's surprised how pessimistic households are, given the buffer uh, savings that remains there. And she didn't even mention things like home equity that remains untapped. Why do you think negativity has gotten so advanced? Is, is gas prices just that primal a force in a household budget? I think you pointed a good point, Carl. Um, 
you know what? People are negative because there's not much to be positive about. I mean, you read the headlines and we're on television here and we're going to sit here and tell you all the things that are currently wrong with the economy. You've got the Russia situation going on. You don't, it's not just about fuel prices. It's also food prices. It's every input to that CPI basket. You're, you're filling that upward pressure on. You're starting to see corporates now indicate that they're going to either freeze or make layoffs. And, and the wealth effect that you have in the stock market is now taking an impact. Yes, you do have that untapped home equity, but the cost of actually tapping into that equity has gotten much more expensive now. And I think all of those things combined start to put the ratchet on on the consumer. Yeah. And, and it's being uh, uh, reflected in those reports. That's a good point. You know, we guy today, we did get uh, net household wealth. Uh, for the quarter, down half a trillion. And, you know, next four sessions Mm -hmm. is going to be light on corporate news, light on earnings. It's going to be CPI tomorrow, then PPI Tuesday, and then the Fed on Wednesday. And I just wonder whether you think the the next week or so is going to be a bit fraught. I do. And listen, you know, Janet Yellen being surprised by things, that should come as no surprise. I think she was also surprised that (laughs) the non-transitory nature of this inflation that they were all begging for seemingly for years. But I think you make a good point. Bonowin hit the nail on the head. And let's face it, 73% of this economy is driven by people buying things. People buy things when they feel good about things. And quite frankly, I don't think people feel that great. And if the stock market was sell off in a meaningful way, consumer spending is going to stop on a dime and then it becomes somewhat self-fulfilling. So the market's still too expensive, in my opinion. What's the right multiple in the environment that we find ourselves in? Rates are going higher, not because the economy is going gangbusters. Rates are going higher because inflation is out of control. And that, to me, is just, it's just not a healthy mix for the market right now. So remind me, what, what is your, what's, the, what's the level at which you get into, interested again, Guy? Well, 3750 is the level I've been talking about seemingly since the fall. We got down to 3810 a couple weeks ago. We bounced. 3750 makes sense if you start doing the math. David Tepper has talked about him getting interested if the market were to trade down to 3500. I think you could see the overshoot down to those levels. We see the market overshoot to the upside, and there's no reason to believe we can't see the market overshoot to the downside as well. Steve, Steve, you got a similar view as to when things do get a little more appetizing? Yeah, I'm, I was right there with Guy. I've been talking about the 3,800 level. Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, I believe, has talked about the 3,400 level. So right where Guy was talking about as well, 34, 3,500. But, but Carl, I think the major issue that I'm dealing with is that everyone I speak with on a daily basis is asking me when to buy the dip. You can't have a substantive bottom until people want to sell everything. You've got to have people throwing things out, not worried about, is this a viable dip? We haven't got there yet. When we do, you're going to start to feel nauseous about the market. And no one feels nauseous right now. Even though people have lost tons of money, no one is sitting here saying, oh my God, the markets are never going up again. That day is when the bottom comes. I would say that Guys level, 3750, mine 3800, we're probably a little too conservative. It's probably somewhere in the middle there. So I think we could feel safe saying it's 3500, 3600. And you know what? Maybe nauseous is 3400. You know, uh, Julie, it's funny. We thought we were getting to that area back when the VIX was flirting with 30 and above. Now we're back to 24. And I do wonder why you think this sense of false comfort is being relayed, at least in that one instrument. Well, I think 
many are trying to find the opportunities to stay invested, there still is a lot of liquidity, right? And we still have pockets where earnings growth is occurring. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm still around commodities. There's like a new hot ETF to play commodities. So I, I think there's plenty of interest in oil and gas, but those are not sectors that as a long-term investor I'm particularly appetized by. Particularly, as we said, you know, the consumer is so critical to driving the economy. And, you know, we talk about CPI and we go X, you know, food and energy. That's like saying, like, I had a 4.0 GPA in high school, as long as you exclude <laughs> math, science and English, right? Just PE, A. It's just not the same, right? Consumers really care about those prices and that's going to take a lot of their confidence out. Yeah, it's a good uh, way to segue to our next segment. For more on what tomorrow's numbers might mean, let's bring in Stiefel, Chief Economist Lindsay Piegs. Uh, uh, Lindsay, it's great to have you back. You know, I was looking at sort of the, the uh, streets estimates for headline tomorrow, and it's remarkable how concentrated they are in that eight and, say, two tenths, three tenths range. What's yours? Oh, we're right in that mix as well. We're looking for 8.2%, which would be down slightly from 8.3, but still a very elevated number. And if we do look at the core measure, as much as it tells us, excluding food and energy, we're looking for the headline to come in just shy of 6%, coming down from 6.2 the month prior. So yes, we are seeing some indications of cooling, but the market is very anxious to call a peak in inflation. And I think that's a bit premature at this point, as we're still seeing conflict overseas, we're still seeing supply chain disruptions, and the Fed hasn't quite choked off the demand side yet. Right. You know, it's been a week, a couple of weeks where we've seen a lot of signs of disinflation in apparel. We've talked about it in metals in fertilizer, maybe in chips, maybe in shipping rates. Uh, but there's a lot of discussion going into tomorrow about how those things aren't going to move the needle of the index itself, uh, given what's happened to shelter and energy. Oh, absolutely. So we are seeing some pockets of improvement, that second derivative decline or a slower pace of price appreciation. But we really don't think it's going to be a sizable or meaningful impact on that headline number. And by extension, it's not going to have a meaningful impact for the Fed. The Fed has been very clear that they want to see a very steep downward trajectory in inflation before they're convinced that it's time to pause or, or slow the pace of uh, policy removal. So Tomorrow's number, even with that, it, that improvement from 8.3 to 8.2, as we're projecting, that's not going to move the needle for the Fed. So, Lindsay, it's, it's Steve Grasso. So when you look at the CPI, it's a lagging indicator, number one. So how much information are we really getting there? And number two, can you call a bottom in the market for equity players, not you, for equity players, can they call a bottom in the market until we've seen, up until we've seen the effects of QT on the tightening process. So your point to the, the backward looking nature of the numbers is absolutely correct. In fact, much of the cooling that we saw last month and are likely to continue to see this month may in fact be a reflection of the improvement in the global economy at the start of the year before Russia invaded Ukraine, before we saw this second, third and fourth round of lockdowns overseas. And so, again, I do think it's premature that the market is calling a peak in inflation or looking to call for a peak inflation as it's likely that prices will remain very very elevated at this level for quite some time, continuing to put downward pressure on consumers and add uncertainty to the marketplace. 
Finally, Lindsay, are you seeing, I mean, one thing that struck me this week is even with oil at uh, 120 and gas a national average of five, uh, gasoline demand is just getting started, it appears, for the summer. And I wonder, what's the risk of CPI in the summer months actually taking a meaningful leg higher uh, from where we are right now? Absolutely, and particularly if demand remains elevated for energy, because right now consumers are still out in the marketplace spending, but obviously higher prices is cutting into the amount that we're taking home. But if consumers are more interested in going on that vacation, driving somewhere this summer, and foregoing purchases elsewhere, what we see is simply a shift in allocation of capital towards that energy component. So not only are prices on the rise, but demand could stay steady or even increase, as we typically see in the in the summer, at the detriment of other categories, perpetuating, though, that rise in the energy sector in terms of prices. We'll see what we get in the morning. Lindsay, as always, thanks so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Joining us from Stiefel today. Bonwin, does it make you think maybe the table is set for more than 50, maybe 75, maybe a point, maybe an intermediate hike? Maybe if they hadn't taken 75 off the table and we there was much ado made about why would you remove that from your quiver? You may need that arrow. And I'm with her. And I'll take it a step further. I think peak inflation is a misnomer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you what we have. We have persistently elevated, unactionable inflation. And it's volatile. So the things that we're saying, we're, we're, we're getting some, some puts in now. Okay, so food's a little bit uh, cheaper. Lumber prices, we've, we've gotten some, some, some abatement there. But now energy Commodity prices are now much higher. So the Fed is going to need to see a sustained downward trajectory and really be able to wrap their hands around exactly where this is trending towards before they're going to move. I think we're just really trying to reverse and engineer the narrative that we want to hear and make a case for why we want to buy the market. And I just simply think that the the rules of engagement have changed. The Fed is in a different position. Yeah, it's a a rolling series of non-synchronized events War, China, inflation, uh, you name it, that's going to make it hard to time. Uh, We do have some earnings to get to tonight, an earnings alert on DocuSign. Shares dropping more than 20% after an earnings miss. Frank Collins got it. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Carl. Uh, Right now, we're looking at that stock fall, that EPS number, and the lack of EPS guidance that really appears to be what's weighing on this stock. Strong quarter. When you look at most of the metrics, billings and free cash flow well above estimates, operating margin basically in line. But on the call, they just uh, end up. Uh, was uh, I was listening to just a short time ago. CEO Dan Springer provided some explanation for the profit miss. We are experiencing many of the macro challenges that our peer companies are seeing, with inflationary concerns, a volatile workforce environment, and general global instability. So again, no EPS guidance after that miss on profit, but the revenue guidance was basically in line for estimates for both the quarter and the full year. The notable exception on guidance was billings guidance. That's the money they expect to get from customers that came in considerably lighter than estimates. The company also said that it was slow hiring. And coming up tomorrow on Tech Check at 11 o'clock Eastern, DocuSign CEO Dan Springer is going to break down the quarter as well as the company's partnership with Microsoft, announced earlier this week. Carl, back over to you. Frank, thanks for that. Uh, Frank Holland. Let's trade it, Guy. Uh, Does this undo any of the goodwill we got earlier in the week on that Microsoft news? 100%. I I mean, without question, it's not, to to Frank's point, it wasn't the quarter necessarily. I mean, it's the fact that, again, earnings continue to get ratcheted down. I mean, just think about this for a second. I mean, she's never been there in retrospect, but in the course of 10 months, the stock is down 77%, 77%, which is a staggering number. Problem is, it probably still has more room to go on the downside. 
And I'm not trying to harp on DocuSign, but this is sort of endemic for a lot of those names. And to Steve's earlier point, it's very hard to start calling a bottom in the broader market when you still have tape bombs like this coming out seemingly daily. I mean, now you're in DocuSign. Obviously, we talked about Target and Walmart five below yesterday with their huge inventory build Microsoft uh, pre-announcement a couple weeks ago. When companies start now pre-announcing on demand, that's going to be a problem. You haven't seen that yet, but unfortunately, I think that's coming to a theater near you. Steve, what's the difference between the fundamentals of a name like this and the investment narrative? Because it's not like we're going to stop doing things digitally or remotely, even post-COVID, the the way we were getting used to during the peak of the pandemic. I mean, that, that practice isn't going away completely, is it? Yeah, so that, that's an important point there. So during the day, DocuSign was trading at the February 2020 level. And now after it reports this print, it's trading at the pandemic low. So it's already fully cycled that. And, and to Guy's point, this thing ran up dramatically during the pandemic. This was something, this was the future. This was people working remote. And it's not going away, Carl, of the electronic signatures. I used it three times today. The problem <laughs> is this is a growth stock. So what, is, what has changed in DocuSign from February 2020? Rates. So w- when you look at how growth is getting smacked around with rates, we don't know what the terminal rate is just yet. We don't know how quantitative tightening is going to react with rates. And it makes, very, it makes it very hard for a company like DocuSign to plan for the future when their growth and they're not sitting where an Apple is or where an Amazon is. They don't have the cash treasure chest. Yeah, way to bring it back to the way we started the block. A great point, SG. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk some dividends, eyeing some big outperformers who keep hiking their payouts. Is it time to trade or fade those names? We'll get details ahead. Plus, Tesla started the day all charged up after that bullish analyst call from UBS. The batteries, though, seem to fade as we got to the close. We're going to kick the tires on that trade when we come back. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Tesla get a boost at the open after UBS upgraded the stock to a buy, but they lose their charge into the close. Analysts forecasting more than 50 percent upside for the shares, saying the company's well positioned for growth and profitability in the years ahead. Julie, uh, do those levels look attractive to you and more specifically to their point of uh, locking up supply chains in a way their rivals haven't been able to yet? I think it's true that they have actually been able to be quite impressive relative to their supply chain and and keeping things moving along. But it's still valued incredibly richly. I mean, like, I'm a very simple-minded person, so I just looked at some of these car companies, market cap relative to the cars they're going to deliver. If you look at Tesla, market cap relative to cars they're going to deliver, it's about $400,000 a car. If you look at Ford, it's about $25,000. If you look at BMW, it's also $25,000. If you look at Lucid, it's $2 million. So I agree, you should pay for growth, right? But there is a limit to valuations. And at the end of the day, this isn't a software business. It shouldn't trade like one. They still have to bend metal. They still have exposure to interest rates. They still have exposure to the consumer. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think any of this valuation makes any sense to me at all. Uh, Steve, one of the things UBS points to is the record backlog and then two gigafactories that are just getting started. How do you buy Tesla and 
and operate within any kind of recessionary playbook at all? Yeah, so we've been having this debate on the desk ever since Tesla was, was, uh, was a stock. It's, it, 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 it's a battery company. It's a technology company. It's a software company. It's not a car company. And you're buying Elon Musk. So every time you sell Tesla, you're selling Elon Musk. And that's not a position that I want to be in. But when Tesla came on the scene, Carl, the only competition was a Toyota Prius. That wasn't a very sexy, attractive <laughs> car. Now everyone has an EV. So the competitive landscape has changed for Tesla. But just as you started the segment off, no one has mastered the output. No one has done what Elon Musk has done. So it's still a bet. It's very rich, no doubt. But if you look at Twitter, it's trading more on Twitter these days than it is on, on EV or anything else. Twitter in the last three months is up 16% and Tesla's down basically 14%. So I think the more that story plays out, it's trading more on that than an EV space or a software space. But I wouldn't bet against Elon Musk ever. Yeah. Guys, we've got an earnings alert on Stitch Fix tonight. Uh, shares adding to the losses after the close after reporting results for fiscal Q3. Company confirms the report from CNBC.com that it will cut 15% of its salaried workforce. Also forecast revenue could fall as much as 15 in the current quarter from a year ago. Uh, Bonwin, interesting uh, situation. Uh, they're looking for a Q4 charge of maybe 15 to 20 million on those layoffs. Yeah. So this is kind of where rubber meets the road here. And I don't understand. We, we talked about it with DocuSign. <clears throat> you cannot be bullish this market when you still have double digit aftermarket moves on the back of earnings. It should not be a surprise that companies are slowing uh, growth, are, are, are slowing hiring. This is a company. And if they are, you're going to want dividend or you're going to want some type of earnings that support that. This is something that's like burning cash, doesn't doesn't produce earnings and they're having growth uh, scares here. So I think that's kind of the perfect storm and emblematic of of what we still have to look out for, the time bombs that are still in this yeah, market. Yeah, and the liquidity we're dealing with in the markets overall Absolutely. on some of these moves. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Right on target. The retailer hiking its dividend by 20%. So what other dividend darlings are worth scooping up? A game of trade it or fade it is next. Plus, Netflix is really running up that hill. The struggling streamer under pressure. But could they be one acquisition away from the top spot? The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. If you're just joining us, check out today's rough session on the street. Stocks did fall sharply. Dow drops more than 600 points. S&P and NASDAQ both down more than 2%. Investors are waiting some key inflation data out tomorrow before the bell. Meantime, moving on, Target raising its quarterly dividend 20% to $1.08 from $0.90. Cents. The move comes days after the big box retailer warned of those weaker margins. Target has raised the dividend every year since it went public in 67, last year boosting it by 30 2%. So is Target hitting the bullseye here? Guy, how can you do this and not be comfortable with the back half? 
Yeah, I think that's a great point by you. I look at Target and say, listen, in the course of three weeks, they've laid two major tape bombs on us. The last one, although the stock sold off, it actually traded pretty well. And if you want to give Target the benefit of the doubt, if you say, you know what, it's just one quarter, they whiffed a little bit, but other retailers whiffed as well, specifically Walmart, you can actually make a case that on valuation, this is as attractive as the stock's been. So I think you're right to point out that, you know, if they're not that confident why they're raising the dividend, the, the back half of this is valuation is compelling for a name that I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to on a one quarter miss. Yeah. Uh, often called uh, one of the best in class in terms of retail. Uh, Target, of course, not the only name to consistently hike dividends. Several have proven to also beat the market over the long term. Our friends at CNBC Pro ran a screener on some of those names, so we thought this would be a good time to play a little game of... Trade it or fade it! That's right, trade it (laughs) or fade it. Elite dividend edition. Let's dive into these trades. First up is UNP. Raised the payout 14% over five years. Shares nearly double in that period compared to 66% for the S&P. Julie, a big part of the discussion earlier in the week was about the operating ratio. Maybe a tough target to beat this year. Uh, But how do dividends fit in? You know, I think for investors that are concerned about the long-term picture, Companies like this that have structural protections around them, that have a lot of earnings durability, even if their operating ratio is a little light here and there, generally speaking, this is a business that executes really well. It's solid. And so I think it's a pretty compelling uh, business if you have a long-term focus. Anwin, your view on, on these? And I guess rails and transports, too, in large. Mm, good good point. Yeah. So. This is kind of like the best house in a neighborhood that I just don't really want to be in right now. So at $6 billion of free cash flow, it's hard for me to really argue against why I want this company. Maybe I could point to the $34 billion in debt and say, "Ah, I prefer a little bit of deleverage there. But really what it is, is I'm concerned about the economy. I think I think the Fed is as well. And I don't really want to be in transports. I'd prefer this instead of, say, the trucking space. But this isn't where I want to be deploying capital. All right. Morgan Stanley, 3.4 yield, uh, shares up 80 percent over five years. Guy, what would you do with MS? Uh, interesting stories. They've moved to asset management. And, and how does it fit the picture in financials overall? They've gotten themselves into three very distinct businesses. Good for them. I think Morgan Stanley's become one of the better operators. I know you don't play this game on Tech Check, nor should you. But I will say with emphatic uh, trade Morgan Stanley. It's sold off enough. Valuation is compelling. Uh, I just think they've gotten themselves in the right businesses at the right time, although I think the broader market goes lower. Not that Morgan Stanley is going to be impervious to that, but I think it'll weather the storm. So I like Morgan Stanley right here. Steve, your thought, and of course, uh, bearing in mind that it won't be too long, just a few weeks before the bank earnings start rolling in again. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a fade it on, on this one. So think about how you started out the segment, Carl. You said these are dividend payers. So the, uh, the dividend yield on this is 3.45%, and the uh, year-to-date performance is down 17%. So I'm going to need about five of those dividends to make up for the money I lost in the, uh, in the actual equity non-performance. So they got into asset management. The market sold off, so they have less assets to manage. Uh, if I think we're going into a recession... I don't want to be in the financials, so I'm going to stick with fading. All right. Lockheed, 2.5% dividend yield, up more than 50% over five years. Bonawin, you talk about your concerns about the economy, but is defense a different kind of story? Defensive, defensive, defensive. We talked about the consumer. If there's one consumer that I'm not worried about, it's the U.S. government. 16 times forward earnings. I'm going to trade this one. Uh, Steve? 
Yeah, this for me is not only uh, defensive, it's defense names. And, you know, where all these supply chain hiccups go away, if you look at Lockheed, where are we going to have to spend a lot more? What we've learned from Russia, Ukraine, is where we were lacking in defense. So you're going to have to beef up whatever side of the aisle you're on. We don't want to get caught without the proper defense. So I think the whole group is attractive, although Lockheed looks the most attractive to me. So I trade that one as well. All right. Last but not least, Allstate, 2.6% yield, rallies more than 45% over five years. Guy, your thoughts? Q, I know you're watching the Ranger game tonight, and you can't bat your eye without seeing a commercial for insurance companies, which says to me they're making money hand over fist. And Allstate is. I think rates continue to go higher. You probably have 35% EPS growth, trading at less than 10 times next year's numbers, recently off the all-time high. I trade Allstate right here. All right, guys, we do have a news alert tonight out of the White House. A senior official says they do expect for tomorrow's CPI data to show continued impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on food and energy prices, as well as spillover on supply chains. That could suggest the report is worse than expected. But as we said, we've got about 15 hours till we find out for sure. Coming up, is it time for Netflix to make a deal? Company, uh, our next guest says, could put the struggling streamer in the top spot. More on that in just a moment. Plus, billionaire hedge fund manager Stanley Druckenmiller taking the stage of the Sone Conference. What he had to say when Fast Money comes back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Struggling content providers Netflix and Spotify under pressure again today. But maybe they're better off together. A new op-ed on Medium poses the idea that Netflix should buy Spotify. It comes a day after speculation Netflix was maybe looking to acquire Roku. James Kakmak wrote the article. He's a partner and portfolio manager at Clockwise Capital. James, great to have you. You know, I was just thinking about Spotify's investor day earlier in the week and some mm-hmm. of their long-term targets, which are totally fang-like. I wonder, is this <laughs> even in the realm of the possible? I mean, it's possible if Daniel Ek thinks so, but the thing is that does have a dual class structure, so it's really entirely up to him. I mean, but the thing is Netflix needs help. I mean, for investors, they have to view it right now as a legacy media asset. And what made them so successful so fast was the fact that they were the only alternative to the cable bundle. Now that everybody's doing the same thing, that point of differentiation is out the window. And subscription fatigue is a real thing right now for a lot of consumers. And with switching costs so low, the only way to increase or to build a great subscription business is to increase the customer utility over time. Now, I think that with Spotify and Netflix, you solve two sets of problems for the price of one. Netflix has a growth and margin problem. Spotify has a churn and margin problem. So together, by reducing churn, you can increase customer lifetime value. Through marketing synergies, you reduce customer acquisition costs. And that increased LTV to CAC ratio is what drives shareholder value. I think you transform it from a discretionary one asset to an increasingly indispensable one. I was just thinking about the the way in which the company got dragged into monetizing passwords. It took years for them to come right. around on that. Do you see them? Sure. Have, have they given you any indication they would be open to M&A of this, uh, this, this size? No, <laughs> no, they haven't. But they have to do something. And if you read the the New York Times uh, interview with Ted Sarandos, I think a week ago, it was a fascinating interview. But the one takeaway that I had was that they are com- fully content with the status quo. And if you're going to keep doing the same strategy, the same strategy, mind you, that every single other media company is doing, um, you can't expect a different result. 
and, and they need to do something. So in the end, if this were to happen one day, does Spotify become more video oriented or does Netflix become more audio oriented? I think both. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of content opportunities you can explore across the board. You know, you, you can have the video uh, components with podcasts could be, could be a big thing. Uh, and obviously think about the, the marketing efforts where you can promote your shows on audio and podcasts and, and things of that nature, the songs that are within the shows. So there's a lot of capabilities to keep people on the platform. The problem for all of these streamers is that the switching costs are very low. I can turn on and off my service when Stranger Things is, is on and when it's gone. So how do you increase those switching costs? You have to do something and you have to make it a, a differentiated in some way. And I think together it can form the most formidable global competitor to YouTube. James, fascinating uh, theory. I appreciate your time as always. Good to see you. Let's trade this Thank one. When, I mean, whether it's Roku, Spotify, why are people talking about them needing to absorb something new? Listen, that's a bold call, and I respect it. You get a lot of analysts that, you know, kind of want to stay within the, the mean or median and not, yep. you know, veer to one, uh, one way or the other. So I respect the call. My question would be, what about user-generated content? That seems to be a lurking com- 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 competitive framework out there. How does this address that? I think when you think about YouTube, and you mentioned competing with YouTube on a global scale, that's kind of a linchpin of their business model. And, I, and it's not clear to me how this acquisition necessarily addresses that. Yeah. Uh, Julie, your, your thoughts, I mean, compared to a, a, a theory or a game situation like this, I mean, for the time being, they are, they're being much more tactical, aren't they? Yeah, I agree. And I think user-generated content is exactly the problem. I don't think it's YouTube, though. I think it's TikTok. If you just look at downloads, that's really what's running away with everyone's attention. And, you know, if you're like a goldfish like me, it's it's pretty compelling, I have to say. I do think there's something to a Spotify-Netflix deal. And it's true. You know, in the old days, Netflix was able to buy content way on the cheap because they were the only game in town. And they gave content creators total creative total creative freedom. And now they're not. Now it's just really expensive to create content. And now there's just too much content. So I think being able to diversify into different kinds of content using the very, very strong algorithms that Spotify Spotify has, it's a better and more compelling business. You know, Guy, one sort of parlor game on the street right now is trying to see which streamer would really rein in their budget first. Because it's very much a, you know, a game theory situation. There's no guarantee that if you rein in your budget, your rival will or, or won't. And in that case, that's exactly. where you end up losing uh, subs more than, more than ever. That's right. I love parlor games. That's I'll right. say this, though. This is probably a $30 billion deal. Netflix doesn't have the balance sheet to do it. And not, they're not going to use their stock as currency at these levels to do it. And Spotify shareholders will be like, what? This was a $350 stock in January of 2021. We're not going to go for this. So it sounds great. It ain't happening. All that said, Netflix is as compelling as it's been in valuation in quite some time. Interesting. Uh, We can see year to date down 68. Pretty unbelievable. Coming up, uh, billionaire hedge fund manager Stanley Druckenmiller takes the stage at this year's Sone Conference. We'll get his market thoughts next when Fast Money's back in two. Don't miss complete coverage of the hearings on the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. 7 p.m. we'll have the news with Shepard Smith. And then at 8 p.m., Shep sticks around for our special wall-to-wall coverage. You can watch it all right here on CNBC. We're getting some news out of the Sone Conference where Duquesne's Stan Druckenmiller has been speaking. Leslie Picker has more on that. Hey, Leslie. 
economy. Carl Miller offering some pretty dire predictions about the economy. He says we've never had a soft landing after inflation has gone above 4.5 percent. Of course, annual gains in CPI have been nearly double that figure, and economists are expecting that to be the case with tomorrow's read. And there's so much wood to chop, and there's been such a broad asset bubble going into it. Um, it's very hard for me to say that the probabilities favor a soft landing. Indeed, I think they aggressively point to a hard landing. He thinks the recession will come next year in 2023. As for how he's positioned his portfolio to account for all of this, well, he says it's been a lot of shorting. Darkin Miller says he's made some money over the last six to eight months by shorting fixed income, shorting stocks, sitting out currencies, and owning some key commodities, particularly in oil. However, he said he's pausing his shorts. I've lived through enough bear markets that if you get aggressive uh, in a bear market on the short side, you can get your head ripped off in rallies. So currently I'm, I'm coming in every day and I'm looking at my screen, but I'm pretty much taking a break. Miller says he will be going back into that short equity position, quote, at some point if the market affords me. Carl? Fascinating, Leslie. Thank you. Uh, Leslie Picker. Let's trade it, Julie. I see you nodding your head. What do we make a stand tonight? No, I mean, I agree. I, we, it's really hard to imagine how we're going to have a soft landing. We all want a soft landing. I mean, I wanted a soft landing when I delivered my kid and it didn't happen. You know, it's just it's really hard to make that happen. Um, but, I, you know, I think we, we, you know, it is a good economy and it is a solid consumer, which should help insulate some of the shocks. And I'd rather be trading in the U.S. than the rest of the world. But I, I still think it's going to be very hard to execute that. Steve, is his note about being aggressive or not aggressive on shorts, is that instructive to you? Yeah, I, I think people, whether, Carl, whether you're long or whether you're short, people get so convicted in their belief that they think that's the only strategy or premise that's actually going to work. But shorts, you always learn and when you enter the equity markets you have unlimited risk, and they say that for a reason, right? If you're long, it could only go to zero. If you're short, as he just said, you can get your head or face ripped off. This is something where you don't want to push your winning position a little too hard, and anything can happen in the equity markets. Uh, we'll keep, uh, well, Leslie will keep us honest on what, what comes out of Sone uh, later on, of course, and tomorrow as well. Let's move to NXP. Bucking the downtrend today, stock jumps 4% on reports that Samsung could be planning a takeover bid. This news sparked quite a bit of interest among options traders, and Mike Coe's here to break down the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Carl. Yeah, so that kind of uh, speculation that we saw definitely fueled some additional activity in the options market. NXP traded more than six times its average daily call volume. A lot of that activity was concentrated in the 200 strike calls that expire tomorrow. But if we look to next week, we also saw that the June 200s were active. Over 1,240 of those traded for $2.40 a contract. Buyers of those risking a little over 1% of the current stock price on a bet that we could see some follow through to this speculative upside that we saw in the stock today. Uh, Mike, appreciate that. Uh, Bono, in your take, given what we know about the environment, people looking for growth, companies still have some currency to deal with, valuations have come in. Do these things, do these types of ideas make sense? I mean, I think they're credible. I mean, this is this is the environment where if you do have currency and you kind of have that treasury chest, you will look for M&A. 
because you can afford to do it and you're able to acquire a company at a pretty attractive valuation. But I think the comments earlier were pretty timely in terms of this is why you don't lean into shorts too heavily. At least if you're going to do it, cover it with a call so that you, you are at least protected on that upside. We'll keep an eye on that. Obviously, huge, uh, huge interest in chips in the auto market. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the Deal Book Conference is underway. Wait till you hear what Howard Schultz of Starbucks has to say about tariffs with China. Those comments are coming up next. Another news alert now. A short time ago at the Dealbook Conference, Andrew Ross Sorkin sat down with Howard Schultz of Starbucks. One of the subjects they talked about was U.S. tariffs with China. China, just like the U.S., needs a positive working relationship with the United States, and we do with China. Now, with regard to the $360 billion of tariffs that Trump put on, uh, it is beyond me why the President of the United States does not lift those tariffs today. Now, that is not the answer to inflation, but inflation today is very different in terms of the cause and the effect of inflation in the past. This is a global issue. Let's trade it, Guy. Uh, Yellen today did confirm the White House is at least considering reducing tariffs on Chinese imports. But why are they tormenting us like this? <laughs> why, are the, why are the politicians tormenting us? Because I mean, that's their want Just do to it do. or don't. It's I like mean, every other day is that we're thinking about it. I think, listen, again, not being a politician, you know, they're probably licking their finger trying to figure out if that's politically expedient or is it going to not play well to their constituencies. I don't know. What I'll say is a couple things. I think Howard Schultz, one, is talking his book. It was just announced. I think Starbucks reopened 600 of the 940 Starbucks in Shanghai. So clearly they have an axe to grind there. Number one, I totally get it. And I think there's some truth to it. I do think he believes that politics notwithstanding. I'll say this in terms of Starbucks quickly. Stock's down 40% from its all-time high this time last summer-ish. I think Starbucks is actually a pretty compelling story. Traded actually pretty well today, and now you're sort of getting away from the zero COVID in China. I think you can buy Starbucks here on valuation alone. Steve, you know, I asked Kramer about this this morning. You look at what the FXI has done over the past month versus the S&P. Why wouldn't you take a, 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 a gamble on Nike, Starbucks, Yum China, given the reopening? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I've watched uh, Alibaba with those price swings. Every, everything that you've just discussed, if you, if you look at, you know, first of all, when you talk about, I'll bring it back really quickly to tariffs. There, it's, it's probably not a position that President Biden wants to take ahead of the midterm elections because no one wants to be seen as soft on China. These were unfair trade practices and intellectual property theft. So that's at the root of it. That's number one. Number two, just trading those names that you just said based on China reopening, to me, is a home run. Alibaba specifically, look at that price swing. Look at yesterday's rally. Look at the way it pulled back a little bit here. If you can get any substantive rally or any substantive Anything other than zero COVID policy out of China, everything China related is going to rip higher to your point, Carl. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if they come around on some of that stuff. We'll get more on that interview tomorrow uh, morning on Squawk Box. When we come back, your final trades. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, guy. 
Higher rates means insurers go higher. Not all state, but prudential. Julie. Uh, connected to that, I like insure tech businesses that support uh, insurance companies, so Duck Creek Technologies. All right, Steve. For all the reasons why I said I loved uh, Lockheed Martin, I'm going to switch and go with Northrop Grumman. Same sector, same type of chart, on fire. Northrop, bye. And finally, Bonowin. Here's my final trade a few weeks back. Guy mentioned it again today. Three times in case you missed it. HYG, continue to be a seller of that one. We're going to watch that closely. Finally, one stat about CPI. Three headline CPIs have come in below expectations in the last two years. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money from the West Coast with Jim Cramer starts now.